question um, that came in. Uh, doc, hi, Dr. Doreen. I was wondering something. In your experience, if a child demonstrates extreme hilarity that is not usual for that child, what could be the cause of that? Well, that's actually a really good question. I guess I've seen that a few times <laughs> with some of our kids where they're just uh, laughing and you can't really tell what's causing it. Mm -hmm. And um, not that it's, necess it's absolutely the cause, but um, often when these situations happen and I continue to ask stories of the parents about uh, the diet of the child, it tends to have some relationship to a yeast die-off type reaction. And when you have, if, if your child is a child who has um, some fungal issues or yeast issues um, and you are perhaps treating the child or have the child on either antifungal medications or on a diet so that the child's uh, yeast levels would be uh, going down, then you might see something like that yeah. during that time frame. Because it's, you know, yeast die-off experience is kind of like uh, being in intoxicated with alcohol is yeah. similar. So um, that might be one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in some cases, some of the kids think something and they're not verbal enough or able to differentiate that what they're thinking you can't uh, tell. Mm -hmm. So they'll be laughing about something and they won't be able to express to you what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, I guess, the two avenues I would ask questions about or try to investigate further. And if it's the yeast, it's probably going to Oh, happen uh, a little bit more often than if it's just something that they happen to find funny. I yeah, would think, right? absolutely. If it's repetitive mm -hmm. and it's not really associated with a particular event or mm -hmm. time of day or activity or something like that, then more likely it is something uh, biochemical okay. and that's where I would be looking. And by the way, I mean, it will uh, gradually go away. Yeah. Um, you want to make sure that, uh, and sometimes, you know, having said that, some of our kids react that way just on sugar. Yeah. Um, you know, you give a child a lot of sugar or various other types of food additives and they'll yeah. become kind of silly and giddy. Yeah. So that's more of a dietary type thing. And maybe when Julie comes on, we can we talk can to her, her about, about that, that as well. too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My child is very yeast reactive. Yeah. Not as much as he used to be. Um, but we used to, before he was diagnosed even, we would, we would call him the drunken elf. Mm -hmm. That he would eat something and he would act like a little drunken elf. Right. Uh, and not always a happy drunken elf, can I just say. That's Sometimes right. we'd get the happy drunk, and sometimes we'd get the maudlin, very yeah. unhappy drunk. Yeah. It yeah. was not. It was not fun. Right. Um, but with dietary changes, we did see that that, and now we just try to be very careful. But we can sometimes get a child who's just left of center. Oh, and <laughs> you know? you know, it's amazing with uh, kids who are reactive to um, yeast. Mm -hmm. um, they have, like, you can test this. Once they're off, yeah. uh, once their candida level is mm -hmm. normal. They, you, you just give them something that is, uh, that provokes it, yeah. and oh my gosh, it's an immediate reaction. You can see yeah. the kids like just going into this phase of silliness. For yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, but we'll make sure that we ask Julie about that a little bit later as mm -hmm. well, because we are going to be joined uh, a little later in the program by Julie Matthews from Nourishing Hope. So you won't want to miss that. Okay, let's move on to another question here. Um, is it appropriate to tell your child they have autism and what age would you explain that to them? 
we've had many questions in the past too about not only that but how do you language that oh, to your child so, that's that's such a broad question yeah. and it's very hard to answer because i think you're um, there's so many factors involved with this. First mm -hmm. of all, families have very different perspective on this issue. So there are some families who actually really never want to get too much into it. Other families who really want their children to know. And then at the other, on the other side of it, some of the families want their kids to know when they're very young and in treatment so that the child understands why there's all these people coming and what's different about me. And other parents tend to tell their kids after the child's kind of come out of it or is pretty much recovered. Mm -hmm. So those factors you have to take into consideration. I think uh, for me, if it was me, I think that I would I would have to ask myself the reasons to that I would want to share this with my child first, and perhaps one reason would be if the child is. Uh, feeling embarrassed at school or if uh, peers are making fun of the child and if the child has the understanding where you can explain it um, but however you explain it you have to make sure that you don't get too technical about it the way that I approach it with my kids is just to say um, yeah just like someone else needs math tutoring you maybe need some tutoring for language mm -hmm. and um, you know this is just way some ways to teach you how to get friends and socialize and it's not a big deal and it, you can overcome it and I downplay it a lot mm -hmm. because I don't want my kids to feel in any way different stigmatized or that sort of thing but I want them to be able to understand uh, why they have difficulty in certain areas. Yeah. So that's kind of the difference. Like if a child is feeling um, confused or upset, like why can't I do the things that these other kids can do? Then it might be appropriate to uh, talk to the child about the fact that, hey, you've really learned, everybody has some area that they need to work on. We're working on this with you. It'll get a lot better. And that's really how I kind of want to make sure you're not damaging the child's self-esteem yeah um, a lot of times parents don't need to do this while the child is in therapy and um, it's funny because so many of our kids as they start to recover they actually uh, hear about it and yeah. recognize it themselves yeah. and they'll come back and say um, I think I have that or <laughs> that sounds like something I would do or something like right. that and so then it's appropriate to explain it I think to higher level kids or kids who are almost at the end of program or have the comprehension yeah. um, and to just kind of say that uh, yeah it's just that you know you you needed some help with language and social skills and that's it I would really yeah. downplay it because I don't you know for a child a label like that is could potentially be damaging yeah and you know anyway who cares about the label it's changing yeah. again in May <laughs> you know, yes so. Uh, with, with a lot of trepidation, actually, yeah. around the change yeah. in May. I, you know, we didn't get to, we saw it last summer, mm -hmm. the, the the way that the DSM-5 was written at that time, and mm -hmm. we could write in and make recommendations. Then, of course, they pulled it down, and none of us have seen it since. Right. And now, have you seen it since? Yeah, yeah. I don't think there were too many changes that occurred okay. after the public feedback. And I, I will look into it, and if it's actually definitely going to come out in May, maybe next uh, in the next couple of shows, we 
can talk about it a little I would bit love and review to. it. Yeah, love to because I know a lot of people have concern about what happens on that day and what's it going to mean. And I, I, I know my question was, are, how long is it going to take? Because clearly they're going to have to train people to be able to diagnose it, aren't they? Oh, gosh. Or should we save that for another show and we'll just no, talk no, about No, no, I mean, that. in terms of the training, I, you know, I when I was training on diagnosis, I think we were on DSM-3 maybe, I'm not, I don't even right. remember, 2R, 3 I would say, um, and then after that came 3R and then 4 and then 4R, so I've switched diagnostic manuals several times now through my okay. career, but, and I think if you're a clinician already, it's basically expected of you to be able to identify, you know, okay. understand the differences. understand it. Um, if you are, uh, in training right now, then you're in bad shape. Because that's exactly what oh. happened to us, actually. We were in training and we had heard that a year later DSM-4 was coming out or something, 3R or something, and so we had to learn both. Wow. So in training, you'll probably have to learn both. It's not a huge issue. I mean, I think they've, personally, when I read it mm -hmm. and commented on it, I thought that there were some improvements okay. to it. I think that it actually, some of the, my feeling about it is that, first of all, it's a, um, it's a spectrum disorder now. It's very clear that it's a spectrum. It doesn't have all these subdivisions that used to be there. They've right. taken out RETS, which is appropriate because that's okay. a gen genetic disorder. They've gotten rid of uh, disintegrative disorder, which none of us use, and it was kind of a useless term. Okay. Um, they've uh, included symptoms of Asperger's. They've included sens uh, sensory issues. That, to me, is massive. Yes. Like, to have that in there. So there are certain, and then it, they have levels now. And I think the levels will actually become very critical because the levels have to do with the amount of support the child needs. Yeah. So once you receive the diagnosis, and currently we don't, you know, and if I give a diagnosis of uh, autistic disorder, autism, mm -hmm. to a child, the child could be high functioning or low functioning, but as long as they fit, I have to give them that diagnosis. So to have the ability now to say, sort of child is has autism at level two, mm -hmm. it indicates right off the bat how much support that individual needs right now. Okay. Now, so that's kind of a good thing. Right. My only fear with this change is that it'll, it, I'm certain that um, funding agencies will start to use those levels um, to identify how much more intervention the child needs. Yeah. That I'm concerned about because, you know, if I say a child is at a level where they don't need a ton of support, that doesn't mean that I won't need, like, let's say, a certain amount of support for three or four years. Right. And I'm afraid that uh, there'll be problems with funding. But we'll and see. I think we're all concerned about that. Yeah. But you're right. We'll wait and see. And, and there are good people such as yourself who fight for us when that happens. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, and I'm sure there's, uh, you know, you can write a lot of detail into what the child needs yeah. to. But yeah, I mean, we can certainly pick a, a week and talk about the okay. DSM coming out. We will absolutely do that. Uh, somebody else, uh, I've got a, uh, a question about food that I'm going to want to talk with both you and Julie Matthews to get both of your takes on it. But uh, somebody wants to know, what can I do to help my child calm down when he's screaming and very impulsive hyperactive? And we don't well, have an age, which yeah, makes a difference, I'm sure. Right, and we don't have uh, an idea of 
the function and what's maintaining that behavior. Mm -hmm. So I guess you, what you'd have to do is identify those things. So always in, when you want to change behavior, Shannon, as you know, you have to identify what are the antecedents and consequences. So what's uh, happening right before this behavior and what's happening after it? What happens after it is usually the thing that keeps it going. Mm -hmm. And the thing that happens before it is usually the thing that triggers it. Right. So you have to ask yourself, like, like when is there a specific setting in which he becomes um, hyperactive? What were the terms that the parents she used? She said, was, uh, "Calm down when he's screaming, screaming. and very impulsive, hyperactive." Right, impulsive, hyperactive. So. Um, First, you look at the setting situations, the antecedents that are setting related. So you were like, okay, this seems to always happen in front of the TV. This mm -hmm. seems to always happen when there's other kids around. This seems to always happen outside. All of those factors give you information. For instance, if it happens when the child's on a playground or outside, the noise level might be stimulating mm -hmm. the child. Mm -hmm. When it happens, let's say, if it happens in front of the television, it could be that the there's something Thing on TV that's sort of a self-stimulatory repetitive thing that excites the child and this is his way of expressing excitement. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to um, analyze the antecedents. If you find that there is no antecedent, then we go back to the original question that someone else asked and then you're looking at biochemistry causing this and um, it, you know, you're not identifying a specific setting factor or time of day factor that relates to this, then you're possibly looking at things like sugar intake, um, red dye, a lot of people tell me, uh, causes hyperactivity. Um, again, things that might be causing um, an increase in uh, yeast or fungal issues. Um, so those are all things, you know, sleep actually has a big impact on hyperactivity. If a child is not sleeping enough, they tend to become over hyperactive for a few days. Those are all the factors that I would be looking at. Um, what you on the on the consequence side, the only thing you want to make sure is that, um, and I'm just making the assumption if the child is uh, very hyperactive and uh, sort of uh, not able to pay attention to anything, you just want to make sure you're not rewarding that. Yeah. That's all you can do, really, because you know that kind of hyperactive. Um, behavior where the child isn't able to inhibit themselves is really there's not much you can do with the consequences of that because usually the child doesn't isn't doing that in order to gain something mm -hmm. they're doing it for self-stimulatory type purposes yeah so you know just not enough information but I guess that's what you would want to look into and let me ask you just as a follow-up because I was talking to a parent the other day and I was talking about the importance of keeping a like a behavioral log mm -hmm. and oh, I was yeah. showing him how to do oh, like yeah. the three the three uh, columns and doing the A, B, and the C, the A right. for the antecedent, the B for the behavior, the C for the consequence. And I said, and this is great, you know, because you start to see patterns, but really it's great to hand off to an expert. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, what else is really important is if you can add the setting and the time, mm -hmm. because often we forget to look at the time of day. That's very important. And the setting. Yeah. Um, because behaviors change pretty significantly yeah. from setting to setting or even from, you know, morning to night. So, um, and, and also, you know, as you're doing this and when you write antecedent, um, the A column, which is like just what happened before it, 
look at other things like look at food that yeah. the child might have consumed within the last 24 hours that might be affecting the yeah. behavior. There's so many factors that you oh. have to analyze. You know? And that was the point that I was making because the, the example from our experience that really gets me every time, my son was having tantrums in one particular grocery store every time we would go in right. in the same area of the grocery right. store. And I kept the little behavior log and I wrote everything down and talked about what was happening before and so on and so forth. And and after I handed that in, they said, we're going to go out to the store to see. And I could have done a behavior log the rest of my life. I could have thought it through the rest of my life. I would never have been able to identify what they identified. The floor changed right where he was having the tantrum. It went from a very slick surface to uh, a tiled surface that yeah. had a, a texture Pattern to it. Or a texture, As a yeah. parent... I would never have caught that. Right. And what they did was they systematized, and I, and I didn't realize that we were having that behavior in other places where there was a floor change, where there was a tiled grid floor. Mm -hmm. And that for whatever reason, visually, he wasn't handling that. And so they systematically desensitized him to that. And it was amazing the difference. Mm -hmm. And every time I'm in that grocery store at that point, I, I'm reminded and humbled by the fact that I would never have figured that out. Right. My child would still be having tantrums there. Well, it's interesting because we forget. I mean, we talk about this all the time, but we tend to forget that our kids have dysregulation in their senses. So the way they perceive the world is pretty different. Yeah. And what you're trying to do and we do this through our programs in ABA, is you're trying to desensitize them to the, the abnormal reactions that they have. You know, basically, uh, you have to imagine that for a child that has visual perceptual issues, what they're seeing perhaps is uh, too confusing. Let's say for us, it might be, it looks like you're walking on snakes. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. something that provokes either anxiety or fear or some sort of chaos. Yeah. Um, and they can't really, um, you know, feel stable where they're yeah. walking. Or it could just be distractive. Like yeah. for a lot of uh, kids, auditory stimuli tends tend to make them very hyper because, you know, I've said this many times, some of my kids will say that background noises are so much louder for them. Yes. And so being able to tune that out is extremely hard for our kids. And so sometimes sound makes them very hyper. Mm -hmm. So we have to remember that they have sensory issues. Yes, absolutely. But and also my point is though that sometimes it's just so essential to work with an expert you get things done so much quicker. Absolutely. It's uh, a lot harder especially I mean even like I you know I would have a hard time with my own kids if I wanted to as a parent it's, hard. it's just harder you see things differently. We always like to joke that we have eyes in the back of our heads but we don't. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a lie. Right. <laughs> okay, uh, an interesting question is Asperger's Asperger's something you are born with? That's a wonderful question, um, and I guess I could ask, is, is autism something you are born with? I believe that you're born with the genetic predisposition um, to the spectrum. So I would say to answer your question, I guess, yes. That's, uh, you know, fair enough to say yes. Um, you, because, especially with Asperger's, you know, Asperger's kids are just so unbelievably off the chart intelligent in one way or another. They always have some unbelievably strong area, like, you know, wh whatever it may be. I mean, I have children who are just 
unbelievable with music or just incredible with art or you know they or or math or they have just some some area of their brain is so super developed and for that to happen um, it's sort of a overcompensation process in the brain where you know if uh, you see how let's say as an example is you see how people who are uh, vision impaired or blind tend to develop really strong other sensory type capabilities yeah. both in hearing I mean they can tell the difference of let's say when they pour something the sound that means it's full right. you know certain things that you develop so when one area is weak another area tends to overcompensate and become stronger so I think that with our kids that's also part of what happens is that their sensory abilities in in one area or another shifts yeah. um, to overcompensate for another area and then you have incredible growth in that area that's usually Asperger's mm -hmm. so I would say the answer to that in my opinion is yes you are actually born with um, some of these brain development differences mm -hmm. and that's how it goes into adulthood and it's not necessarily bad I mean with yeah. Asperger's you know we're we're looking at there are certain things that you might be lacking but usually those are things you can learn right yeah and Absolutely. so then you end up uh, learning what is socially appropriate and right. at the same time you have these incredible strengths right great yeah. gifts amazing gifts right. okay we've got a, a lengthy question here hi Shannon and dr. Doreen my question is about full inclusion for our kids who can blend in with a group my son can blend in with peers until it involves language he's mm -hmm. 11 but his language is like a five-year-old then he stands out and my, my child stands out a little bit too academically he can test with his peers as long as it's multiple cho choice and not show what you know type questions his IEP is coming up and I'm all for full inclusion however his fourth grade looks pretty challenging I just know that with the two hours of resource room he gets in third grade I know he's missing large chunks of the curriculum I just want a team who knows how to differentiate his tests so that he can stay in his classroom my question is could you do a show about inclusion for our kids and how important it is to have those supports in place and role models thanks yeah that a lot of really good points in that in that email um, and this parent is absolutely right this is a very critical point in your child's um, life mm -hmm. because things could go wrong but and with careful consideration on the right group of people things can go very right so there is quite a bit of difference when you're going into like third fourth fifth grades mm -hmm. those um, you are right that he's probably missing quite a bit of stuff being in resource mm -hmm. um, you are right that he will have a hard time with kids as as you start to go into like fourth and fifth uh, kids become a little bit more mean <laughs> you know and I don't want to say mean but I mean it just becomes a little bit more competitive less empathy at that point in life and so it would be important for your child's program at home to be focusing on things like so 